We're going to jump in today to the sermon, and uh, the title of my message tonight is, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, On the Other Side of Regret. On the Other Side of Regret. We've all had those moments of regret in life. Sometimes something happens that just stops us still in our tracks, and what happens on the other side of that moment Um, I guess I'm honestly here to tell you tonight could be a matter of life or death. That on the other side of regret, you could find either life or death. So I'm going to read a few scriptures to you. Um, Typically, I try and read just one, but I'm going to have a number tonight. So if you could just try and, you could try and keep up, but you you really don't need to. The the main ones will be up behind me. But I'm going to read from 1 John uh, 1 9, and then I'm going to read from 2 Peter 3 9. So I'm going to tell you this week exactly the subject uh, matter. We're in this series called I Have Decided. It's all about the spiritual disciplines. Uh, next week is the last week of this series, and so we hope that it's been uh, fruitful for you and practical for you. Tonight, I'm going to be preaching on the, the two subjects of confession and repentance the two spiritual practices, things that you can put into place in your life that will help you not only grow closer to God, but help you to be a disciple, help you to, um, I think, find a fruitful existence on this planet, and of course, a fruitful existence in the afterlife. And um, so the subject, the two subjects tonight that are really like twins kind of go together are confession and repentance. And so towards that end, I want to read First uh, John 1, 9. This is what it says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, that word means to speak out, to profess, to proclaim, to to declare. If we openly confess this, not trying to hide anything, not trying to pretend like we didn't do something wrong, not trying to uh, cover it up. If we confess it, If we bring it to light and we proclaim our sins, this is what the scripture says, if we proclaim it, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Both of those things are important. And this is what it says in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that anybody should perish but that all should reach repentance. Repentance. Repentance is a word that means uh, to, to change your mind, and really more than that, it means to change your heart, and really more than that, it means to change your direction. So the visual picture is if you're walking one direction in life, thinking something and believing something and acting in a certain way, repentance would be to turn around 180 degrees and go the other direction. Okay, so these two subjects that we're talking about tonight, confession and repentance, I get it. They can come off even right now at the beginning a little heavy, um, maybe a little intimidating to some of you, especially if you're new to church, like, okay, here we go. The preacher's going to start coming down on us and telling us how bad we are. That, that's really not really the point or my heart tonight. The truth is that in both confession and repentance, there is a freedom and a joy that can come to you. There, there's a freedom unlike anything else. 
Because sometimes the, the strongest chains that we have on us are the chains of our own sin and the oppression that our sin causes us. And what's so beautiful about our God is that, that he says, if you just would confess and repent from these things, then the, the chains would come off. There would be such freedom allotted to you, not only for this life, but the life to come. And it's not based on, on your works and what you can accomplish and how good you can be. He's saying if you just would confess, if you would just acknowledge that you've done wrong before me and you've not acknowledged that you've, you've walked away from me, I'm a just God. You see, justice, sometimes uh, we would think that something needs to be done to equate for what was done. And, and what our God has done is that he took our place. He took our place of penalty, not making us accomplish what needed to be done, but he did it for us. And now we're in this place of just needing to confess and repent. And so I, I just want to give a brief introduction to this, and then I'm going to pray. I'm really going to get into the, to the message. But um, if you will allow me just for a moment, I just want to preach the basic gospel sort of through the lens of these two thoughts, confession and repentance. And the basic good news of God is this, that from the very beginning... God created humanity to be in right relationship with him. If you could, if you could imagine it like this, that, that he created us to stand face to face with him, looking directly at him, eye to eye, with nothing in between us, with no separation, with no shame or anything that would make us turn our eyes from looking directly into his face, but just this, this perfect relationship where we, we stand before him and, and we have this, this unhindered relationship with him. That's the way that God created us. But what sin does in its very essence is it makes us, inside of our heart, turn away from him. Maybe it's one degree, maybe it's 45 degrees, maybe it's 180 degrees, but to some degree or another, the pride of our heart or the decisions of our hands, we turn from this perfect relationship with God and we turn away. And so from the very beginning, what God has been doing has been uh, trying to, to entice us to turn ourselves back to this relationship that he desires for us with him. And he's just inviting us back to this right relationship, this right standing. He's inviting us back to turn towards him and to look directly into his face of perfect relationship. Have you ever noticed that there's something about shame and guilt that hinders you from wanting to look somebody in the eye? I notice this with my own kids. When they do something wrong and they know it, they won't look at me in the face. And I have to say, Parker, son, look at me in the eye. There's just something about shame and guilt that makes you want to look away. You know, the, the Hebrew word for the presence of God is to, to look the face of God, the face of God. That's literally what the word the presence of God means. It's the face of God. It's this idea that we were created to look at the face of God in, in relationship, unhindered. 
But each one of us, whether we chose to eat a, a physical piece of fruit or not, that's not the point. The point is that each of us, just like the first human beings, we chose to, in our heart, turn away from God, turn away from trusting him and his commandment, and we turned from him. And what God did in the very beginning is the same thing that he does for us right now. He came walking to us in the cool of the day, giving us an opportunity to what? To confess to him what we had done. He said, Adam and Eve, where are you? Where are you? Like he didn't know. He knew where they were, but he wanted to give them the opportunity to confess, to speak out where they were, the fact that they were hiding and what they had done. And what did they do? They didn't confess. They blamed. They passed blame. Adam says, God, the woman that you gave me, she's the one. And Eve says, God, it was the serpent and his past blame. And we've been struggling with the same temptation from the very beginning. This temptation that holds us back from, there's something, have you, have you, ever, have you ever felt it? That thing that just holds you back from wanting to just confess. What is that thing that stops us from just confessing? I was talking with some friends, me and my wife. I couldn't remember who we were talking to. If it was you, let me know. But uh, <laughs> we were talking to some people, and they, and they said they caught their child. They went into the room, and their child just had marker everywhere. There's marker everywhere, all over their skin, their legs, their arms, and everything. And they said, maybe their son or daughter, son, why did you draw all over yourself? And this is what they said. The boy, the young, is a young child, and the, the son goes, <gasps> that was you? Was J.O. telling the story about you? Oh, was it in a sermon? Oh, everybody already heard this story. I, I was trying to remember if it was my own son or not, because that was you. Awesome. You guys have already heard that, but... That's just so poignant, isn't it? That you would act like, that the, the, the child mind would even act like it wasn't you. Seth, it was you. Yeah. <laughs> and I know my own kids have done this to me before, like cran all over the walls. And, and then you say, what did you do? Uh, nothing. <laughs> no, no, I, I could see it. It's right here. And the thing about it is, the more the conversation goes, the more frustrating it becomes, not only at the crayon on the wall, but on the, the fact that you won't just tell me, son. Just look me in the face and just tell me. Just tell me that you did it. And we'll, we'll talk about it, and we'll move on. But there's something that even from the youngest of age inside of us, that is trying to convince us not to just confess when we do wrong. Not to just, yeah, I messed up. Have you ever felt that? I feel it all the time. I'll get in these, let's say, passionate conversations with my wife about arguments and, you know, and she'll be like, your tone of voice was so rude and, and I'm, no way! <laughs> There's no way! And I just, I just don't want to admit to it. And then 
almost every time, about an hour later, I'm like, okay. You're right. But there's just something. Have you ever felt that? Something that wants you to not just be free with the things in your life, not to just speak them out, confess them, bring them to the light, put them out in the open air for all to see and say, you know what, I messed up. I want us to address that tonight and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us and teach us to be free with our confession and eager to repent. So I'm going to say a prayer and then we'll jump in. Lord, I thank you for every person that's uh, listening to this message tonight. Here in the room or online, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence and the Holy Spirit. I ask, Lord, that you would uh, speak to us the truth of your word tonight and that you would do what only you could do inside of us and that, uh, that we would be a people that, that humbly walk out and walk into this, this practice of confession, repentance, that, that we'd be people that would be eager to confess and repent, to come to you. The humility would be seen and experienced from our friends and family around us. Lord, would you have your way in this room tonight and through this message in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna look at two, two people tonight to um, consider these two topics, confession and repentance. It's two people that walked with Jesus, two people that probably had um, similar pasts to some degree or another. They weren't perfect people. They weren't necessarily well-educated people, but they were some of the people that Jesus chose to walk with them. Storied pasts um, in different ways, but both of them chose to leave the life that they had and to give up whatever uh, sort of tangible life that they were living in order to follow Jesus step by step for three years of their life. That's commendable in many ways to walk away from, from job and career and, and whatever it is that was going on and to leave that behind excuse me, and to say, Jesus, I'm gonna walk with you. And these two people, you would know them by name, Peter and Judas. And we're gonna look at uh, how these two disciples who had both left their, their lives behind and followed Jesus for three years, they had experienced his teaching, they had experienced his miracles, they had experienced his healings, they had watched this magnificent ministry develop in front of their own eyes, they had, they had watched the ups and the downs, they had gone all over the nation of Israel, even outside of it, to see Jesus, the Son of God, do the amazing things that he did. And they, they reached this culmination point after Jesus said, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, and they're gonna put me to death, and surely both of them, neither of them, thought that they themselves would have anything to do with what was going to happen. And so uh, they, they entered Jerusalem with him. And this night before his crucifixion, you've heard it probably talked about before, it's the, it's the, the, the Passover meal, the first night of, of communion. They meet with Jesus in the upper room. And Jesus declares this to all of the disciples. He says, one of you tonight is going to be betray me. And it's sort of this, I'd imagine, be this awkward moment because he says, like, yeah, it's going to be the one who I dip the bread and give it to. And then he, like, gives the bread to Judas in front of everybody. And, but it, there's not a whole lot of other context in the scripture what it says. It's just, I, I bet it'd be super awkward if you're, like, that guy that he hands it to. And you're like, oh, it's me. 
okay? So I don't know how it went down because he obviously had this, you know, he had this plan, and it says that Judas then left. And so you, you would find in Matthew 26 that he goes to the, the priests, the chief priests and the leaders, and he says this. He says, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? In Matthew 26, 15, you'd find this. And it says, they, they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Okay, so this is one of Jesus's closest friends. He was closer to Jesus than most everybody else. He was within the party of 12. He himself was the one that was the money holder. Apparently, he really liked money. That's an issue that not only people in the 21st century have, but he had this issue. He was the money holder, and he, he desired some compensation for his work, so he went to them. Even though Jesus was walking around them all the time, they were looking for a way to capture him in the dark, and so they took uh, Judas's invitation. They paid him 30 pieces of silver, and he led this group of soldiers up to Jesus after the Last Supper when I think he was praying on the Mount of Olives. Is that correct, the Mount of Olives? All right, let's just say that that's where Jesus was. <laughs> Dave, was he on the Mount of Olives? Gethsemane. Awesome. Smart. Garden of Gethsemane. Is that not on the Mount of Olives? <laughs> I just can't confess when I'm wrong, you know, just, go, just kidding. I, guys, I'm wrong in this case. I'm not perfect. Okay, Garden of Gethsemane. Here we go. So in Matthew 26, later on, he, he brings all of the, the soldiers up, and, and he tells them, he says, the one that I go and kiss, that's Jesus. It's kind of weird because they probably already knew who he was, but he walks up to him, and Jesus knew what was going to happen, and he says, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. And Judas kisses him. And immediately, the guards come and capture him. And they take him away. Much has been said about Judas's motivation to do this. And uh, some people just, you know, probably main, mainly people have said, yeah, he's just, he was just straight evil. And he was turning on Jesus, the son of God. And uh, other people have, have made the argument that he was trying to spur on a religious war. And he thought he was maybe doing something positive. Either way, um, he handed over the Son of God unto his death. So that's pretty negative, right? <laughs> and this is what it's... Let's just pause there. Let's pause there. Let's pause there. This is, this is Judas's betrayal of Jesus, handing him over, okay? Now let's turn to Peter. After Jesus was handed over and led away and he's starting to be put on trial and all of these things, uh, you'd find this in Luke 22 that, that Peter is sort of following from a distance, watching what they're doing with Jesus and how, how they have him in cuffs and they're, they're, uh, they're beginning to put him on trial and, and eventually they're going to torture him and put him on the cross and kill him. And it says that uh, just as Jesus had, had predicted in the upper room, or prophesied really, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And then Peter spoke up like he often did. And he said, Jesus, even if somebody betrays you, even if everybody else betrays you, I won't betray you. I'll go to death for you. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, tonight, before the rooster crows, you yourself, you will betray me. And you will deny me three times. 
And this is exactly what happens as Jesus is led away. You've probably heard this story before. Uh, Peter was following from a distance, and one person, a little girl first, sees him around a campfire, and she says, hey, aren't you one of the guys? And he says, no, I'm not one of the guys. I, I wasn't his disciple. And another person says, hey, aren't you one of the guys? And he says, man, I don't even know, I don't even know the man. I'm not, I'm not who you think I am. And then the third time, somebody says, surely you're one of the ones that was with Jesus. And he says, I am not the man. I don't even know him. And at that very moment, the rooster crows, and he realized what he had done, and it says this. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, and this is in Luke 22. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times, and he went out and he wept bitterly. Both Judas and Peter had these moments of denying him, of betraying him. These moments of, you could say, sin. You could call it a mistake. You could call it whatever you want. They both had these moments of turning away from Jesus to one degree or another. And this is what happens. Judas's response to his betrayal Matthew 27. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, that's the realization. That's the realization. He changed his mind. That's the regret. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. That's the confession. He had a moment of realization. He had a moment of regret. And he had a moment of confession. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple. And he departed. And he went. And he hanged himself. After Judas's moment of betrayal, he had a moment of response. He realized that he had done something wrong. He had a moment of regret, and he went and he took some action based on that realization and that regret. But it ultimately led to his death. What did Peter do? Again, in Matthew, uh, sorry, Luke 22, in verse 6, he says, Peter they said, he said, man, I do not know the man that you're talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And he remembered that the Lord uh, had said, you will deny me. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered what the Lord said. That's the realization. He remembered that, what the Lord said. That the, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. That's the regret. And then we find this sort of pick up, picks up the account in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of John after 
Jesus had uh, been raised from the dead. In John chapter 20, it says that the, the women went to the tomb and they realized that Jesus was gone and the angels were there and they said, he's not here. And so they went back and they found some of the disciples and, and Peter and John had this little race to go to the tomb and they ran there and they were looking for him. And, and then in verse uh, chapter 21 of the gospel of John, we find that the disciples, including Peter, are back at their old uh, ways, back fishing again. And then this is where Jesus shows up on the scene, chapter 21 of the gospel of John, and he sees uh, the disciples, including Peter, out in their boat fishing, and he shows up on the shore, and he calls out to them, and he says, how's it going? They say, it's not going very good. He says, throw your nets on the other side, and you'll catch a bunch of fish. They did that. They caught a bunch of fish, and, uh, and then Peter realizes that's Jesus on the shore, so he puts his coat on, it says. He jumps into the water, and he swims to him. I don't know why you would put your coat on to swim, but <laughs> that's what it says. He's weird. If you ever try to swim with clothes on, it's difficult. It's Peter, though. So Peter swims to the shore, meets Jesus. They eat breakfast together, and this is what it says in John 21. This is sort of, as it were, the moment of, of reconciliation. I believe that repentance has taken place. You could see this through the fruit of him, uh, Peter's actions. Maybe not a moment uh, that you could see in the scripture, a certain sentence, but there's, there's, there's regret, and it leads to this this reconciliation through repentance, and we see it sort of develop right here, John 21, starting in verse 15. When they had finished the breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Repentance. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend to my sheep. He said a third time, Simon, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And if you know the rest of the story, Peter, this man who himself had turned on Jesus and betrayed him, and he had a moment of realization and a moment of regret. He himself repented from that, was reconciled to God, and, and then he was the one that really led the birthing of the movement of God, the powerful movement of the church in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came and filled him up, and he preached the gospel, and 3,000 people came to know the Lord that singular day, and then everything just exploded from there that you can read all throughout the rest of the book of Acts in the New Testament. And what I want to point out to you tonight is that these two men, who both made mistakes before the God of the universe, both made more than that, sins before the God of the universe, uh, both had realizations that they had done wrong, both had moments of regret. One of them, their regret ended up leading to death, and one of them, their regret ended up leading to life and life abundant. Why? Because one of them, their confession wasn't unto God, and it wasn't a confession of a pure heart, and it definitely wasn't a confession that led to repentance, and one of them had a confession that led to repentance and reconciliation of relationship, and therefore life. What happens on the other side of regret? Every one of us in life is going to make mistakes. Every one of us in life is going to do wrong. Every one, of, every one of us is going to sin in life. And we come to this moment where we're either going to acknowledge it or not. And when we do, what we do from that point is going to determine what happens moving forward. 
if you acknowledge your wrong or your sin at all, what it's probably done in you is created some sort of remorse and some sort of regret. What repentance does is it washes away the wrong, it washes away the regret, and it brings you to restored and right relationship with God where you can stand before him face to face, unashamed, guiltless before God in right relationship, not only ready to enter an eternal life, but ready to do all that he's called you to in this life. Peter truly repented. If you were to... Uh, jump into the original languages and kind of look at the Greek. You know, I say this sometimes. You can get all that you need to get out of the English version, but sometimes digging into the, the original language is beneficial. And in, in this case, there's some nuances in the words that we find uh, amongst these, this subject of confession and repentance. And, and repentance really in the, in, the, in the Greek is metanoia is the word. We get our English word metamorphosis from this, you know, when a, when a little bug or whatever it is goes into the cocoon. What's the bug called? A caterpillar. Goes into the cocoon and is transformed into a butterfly. <laughs> There's a transformation that takes place. That's what repentance does. It transforms us. And there's this other word called metamelamai that really is what Judas did. In fact, that's exactly the word that's in the text when it says that he regretted. He was sorry. Metamelamai, he was sorry. It's this word that's, that's similar to Metanoia, it's similar to repentance, but it's not quite there in that what it's describing is the fact that you felt sorry for doing something after the fact. You regretted it. I wish I hadn't had done that. And what metamelamai is supposed to do is lead you to metamorphosis. Your regret, your realization, how you felt sorry for what you did, how you regretted it is supposed to lead you to the next step, which is repentance and transformation. I find it interesting that it describes Judas as being one that truly regretted what he did. In fact, he regretted it enough to go back to the people that had given him the money and to throw down the money before them. It even uses the word confession. He confessed that he had sinned to them. But he didn't confess what he had done to God. And he didn't let his regret lead him to repentance. Because he didn't experience that repentance, he didn't experience the freedom from his sin, and he went out and he took his own life. Peter, on the other hand, who experienced Immense regret, bitterness through weeping, experienced not only freedom, but restored relationship with God and a destiny for this life and the life eternal. Transformation. 
What that word repentance really means is that you would come to realize that it might bring regret, but that ultimately it would bring reformation in your heart. Reformation. That whatever degree you've turned from God, one degree or 180 degrees, that the, the reformation in your heart would turn you back towards God to receive the forgiveness that he wants to offer you and the restored relationship that your eyes of shame and guilt would return to look into his face and say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I thank you for your kindness and I come home to you today. There's really, if I could put it like this, two kinds of confession and repentance. Some of us were talking about uh, this subject this week and if you think about confession and repentance in the eternal sense, that is the, uh, the sense that would lead unto salvation, confession in many ways is, is the first fruit, as it were, of, true, of a true repentant heart. So that is to say that generally speaking in your life, if you've realized that there's been some separation between you and God, that you've, you've come back to God and you said, Lord, I'm repenting, like it says in Romans chapter 10, that if you, uh, if you acknowledge through faith in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So there's a repentance that has to take place in order for you to come to God at all. And there's a confession, a first fruit, as were a first deed or first action that you will do with your mouth. You will confess that Jesus is your Lord, expressing the repentance that's going on in your heart, and that's what, it, what will uh, be the thing that sort of cements your salvation. If you haven't done that in your life, if you haven't repented and turned back to God in your heart, you can do that tonight. You can make the choice through your faith and your life to turn back to him, repent, and say, God, I'm making you my Lord and my Savior tonight. There's a confession and repentance unto salvation. But then there's a practice, let's call it a spiritual discipline of confession and repentance that you and I should walk in in our everyday life. And it's not really a confession and repentance that's like leading to salvation. I want you to know that you don't need to confess and repent in order to be saved over and over and over again. When that's done, that is done. But there is something that as we, we stumble and we sin and we make mistakes to one degree or another, uh, that, that we should be a people that, that put into practice confessing and repenting from the mistakes or the sins or whatever it is that we do, the, the choices that we make just in walking out this journey in this life. One is for the eternal life and one is for this life. Does that make sense? So I want to think about that for the last few moments. Seth, you could join me. Uh, for the last few moments, because what we're preaching about in this series is the spiritual disciplines. And so I want to put something in your hand uh, when it comes to spiritual, the spiritual discipline of confession and repentance. But I, I just wanted to make sure that what I'm not talking about is confessing and repenting so that you could be saved again. That is definitely a real thing, albeit the most important thing, but that is not the thing I'm talking about right now. Okay? What I'm talking about right now is the practice of confessing to God, even to one another, and repenting from these things that, that are trying to make their way into our life, these choices that we make, these sin choices that we make that can separate us from God. 
Repentance is something that we should walk in uh, probably every day to some degree or another. I want to briefly just touch on a few things uh, just to help you think about this that, that the scripture says would lead us to repentance. The first would be the realization of sin. Both Judas and Peter had a realization of their error. Matthew 9, 13, Jesus says, I've come to call, I've come to not call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. What he's doing right there is giving the hearers of that word an opportunity to realize that they themselves are the ones that he's talking about. Sinners. I've come to call the sinners to repentance, that we would all realize, oh, he's talking about me. The realization of sin or fault should lead us to repentance. Number two, the kindness of God really should lead us to repentance. It really shouldn't take our guilt and our shame to lead us to repentance. We should look at the God of the universe and who he is and how good he is and how loving he is, and we should just, we should come to him through his kindness. That's what it says in, in Romans chapter two, verse four. It says, do not, uh, do not presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience of God. Do you not know that it's God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance? It's his kindness, his goodness towards you that should lead you to repentance. Sometimes the goodness of God doesn't lead us to repentance. And what happens when we don't repent because of his goodness is the inevitable outcome of our sin, which is regret, sorrow. But because God is so good, He'll let us feel that godly sorrow, that conviction to lead us to repentance. What it says in 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. I think that Judas experienced worldly sorrow, worldly grief, not godly sorrow. He had a realization of wrong. He regretted it, but it didn't lead to repentance. Peter, on the other hand, realized what he had done. He regretted it. He repented from it, and it led to a rest, restoration of relationship. I want to invite you tonight, if you have never repented, turned, your life towards God, that you would consider making that choice tonight. That you put your faith in him, a faith for salvation, a faith for identity and purpose, both for this life and for the eternal. But on top of that, because my guess is that most people in this room are walking in relationship with God, my invitation to you is that you would consider, is there any place in my life that I need to practice confession and repentance? There's a number of things that would stop us from freely confessing. Sometimes it's just outright sin, just sin, blinding our eyes, stopping us from even realizing that we're in the wrong. This happens to me too much. It's those moments that I say, no, I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't respond that way. I wasn't rude to that person. I didn't. But by God's grace, I, I, I realize, yeah, you did. Maybe it's pride that stops you. 
Maybe it's this, this thing inside you that is going to be embarrassed if you confess something. Maybe it's this thing inside you that says, I'm too old and I'm too far along. I shouldn't still be struggling with that thing. This, friends, I think is one of the, one of the worst offenses. This is, I think, why so many pastors have moral failures is because we get to this place in our walk where we say to ourselves, I should be beyond this. There's no way I should still be struggling with that. And so now I can't confess it to anybody because I should have been beyond this 10 years ago. And so we convince ourselves that if we told anybody, if anybody found out about this, that we would be ruined. And so we stop ourselves from confessing. We stop ourselves from bringing something to the light. And when you stop yourself from confessing and repenting, that thing just doesn't go away. It builds up on you. It chains you up. It it calluses your heart to the Holy Spirit. So I'm not telling you that you have issues or sin or stuff that you need to confess. I don't know if you do. I just want to invite you that if you do, that you would encourage your soul to be laid bare before the Holy Spirit, as it were, to just say, God, is there anything that I've kept hidden in the dark? Is there anything that I need to confess to you? Is there anything that I ought to confess to another brother or sister? The scripture talks about that, by the way. We, we rejoice in the fact that we can go straight to God with our confession. We don't have to go through a pastor or a priest. We can go straight to God. But there's sometimes immense freedom that can happen when you confess to another human being. Don't underestimate that. Scripture says, confess your sins one to another. I had had to do it this week. Here I am writing a sermon on confession and repentance. And I had to to go to my brothers and say, if I don't put this in practice, who am I? And I had to, embarrassingly confess. Guys, I messed up. There's freedom that comes. There's restoration that comes. This word confession is a, again, not to talk too much about the Greek, but it's just really cool. The word is homologeo, homo me being one, homo one. Lageo means what you speak. The insinuation is that what you speak is, is one and the same with what you do. That there's a, there, there's a unity, that there's a, a continuity between who you are and what you say. That as you confess, that your heart will follow suit. And so I want to close with this last challenge, that sometimes we have these moments, if we're confessing at all, where we'll confess something, but we won't actually repent. We see this where somebody 
has gotten to the place where they're courageous enough to, to go to somebody or maybe come up to the altar and they confess, I did this, I did this. But what we, what we see is that it's, it's week after week. They just give themselves over to this thing and then they confess it. But there's no repentance that follows. I want to encourage all of us, myself included, that, that we would confess with our mouth that everything will be brought into the light and that we would repent, repent with our heart unto reformation. That as we confess, that there would be unity in our action with that voicing of whatever it is that we need to confess from.